Welcome back to Expanding the Continuum. This episode is a live recording of a panel discussion that was part of a webinar hosted by Health Partners on IPV and Exploitation. This webinar, entitled Health Justice in Practice, Supporting Survivors of IPV and Exploitation Who Are Living with HIV in Community Health Centers, was recorded on March 30th, 2023. With the movement towards trauma-informed care, many community health center-based HIV and sexual health programs are looking for ways to better support their patients who are experiencing intimate partner violence or other forms of exploitation and abuse. HIV care and sexual health providers see the ways that violence and trauma lead to worse health outcomes for their patients and can make it more difficult for patients to stay engaged in care. This webinar and the panel discussion featured providers, advocates, and survivors from across the country working to promote the health and well being of survivors living with HIV within clinical settings and in their communities. You can find the Zoom recording of this webinar at healthpartnersipve.org and in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. So um, we really want to get started um, with having this conversation with really uh, with the health equity lens. Um, so this is the definition that we're going to be kind of using in order to have the health equity framework. Um, we are defining health equity as individuals and communities having equitable access to the things that they need uh, for their well-being and self-determination, such as no one's health outcome are as the result of interpersonal or, or structural oppression. Um, and we believe that health equity approach really requires us to center the historical marginalized, exploited, and oppressed communities, and to really focus not on the individual behavioral change, but to really look at some of the structural and systemic change that's needed. So again, this is going to be really our focus on this conversation that we're going to be having today. So um, now we want to talk a little bit about what IPV, intimate partner violence, is. So intimate partner violence, um, as many of you know, um, is defined as a pattern of behavior that a person uses to gain power and control. Again, the key is power and control here over another person that they are in a relationship with. And oftentimes when we hear about intimate partner violence, we're only thinking and hearing about physical violence. But again, IPV can mean a lot of different things. It can mean emotional and verbal abuse, um, coercive control, um, sexual violence and coercion, reproductive coercion, psychological abuse, um, as, well as, as well as financial abuse. And um, IPV is very, very common. Um, so between one and two and two and five people in the U.S. have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Um, and because of various um, intersecting forms of sexism, racism, trans homophobia, and other forms of oppression, um, marginalized and or historically exploited people experience IPV at a higher rate. Again, IPV happens in a monogamous relationship, non-monogamous relationship. Um, again, it's very common, happens in various, within various race, class, gender, 
um, but that uh, intersection forms really, really does um, create barriers for our folks who are experiencing IPV. So like I said, oppression and systemic uh, violence really does create disparities um, for folks experiencing IPV. 41% uh, of Black women have experienced physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime, compared to 31% of white women, um, and 30% of Hispanic women, and 15% of Asian or Pacific Islander women. Um, and compared to cisgender individual, transgender individuals um, are 2.2 times more likely to experience physical um, intimate partner violence. Um, and again, poverty, economic insecurities are some of the barriers for survivors who are seeking safety. And um, also to acknowledge that people with disabilities are significantly more likely to experience all forms of intimate partner violence. And with that, I am going to pass it to Surabi to talk to us a little bit about the IPV and HIV and talking about the binary um, with intimate partner violence. Thank you, Mega. <clears throat> I'll just wait for you to pin me. Um, and in the meantime, I th thank you so much for all being here. My name is Surabi Kuke, and I work with the Futures Health team, as Mega mentioned. So I want us to think a little bit about uh, this sort of false binary between survivors and people who use violence. Um, sometimes uh, we think about them as very different people in order to create a very close protective uh, space around the survivor to, to, to kind of distance the person who harmed them. But we have to remember that <clears throat> uh, people who use harm come from the same communities as the people that they harm. Um, and it's important to break down the binaries that, uh, that divide our communities, um, that actually exacerbate violence in our communities. Survivors of violence are harmed also by the societal expectations of being a quote unquote, perfect victim. <clears throat> There's no room for the gray area. There's no room for growth or making a mistake or trying something different sometimes. It may, it, it is possible for survivors to use what looks like abusive behaviors and, and engage in uh, behaviors that are criminalized in order to survive. So the notion of the good victim or the good survivor, it can be really harmful to survivors doing whatever they need to survive, protect their lives, their children, et cetera. And often when it comes to providers working within systems, survivors may be reluctant to disclose because they are afraid of judgment, increased violence at home or in their relationship, or simply not knowing what might happen if they did disclose. Now to look at the folks in our communities that are using violence. The reality is not unlike survivors of violence, they are very likely to have experienced or witnessed violence in their child, in their own childhood. So child, uh, yeah as children have witnessed. 
They may be at very different stages of their own awareness or accountability for their behavior. So there may be some that are in a state of complete defensiveness and denial. There may be others that have really moved through with the support of therapeutic supports or community supports to begin to take accountability. You don't know this by looking at someone. And they too might be reluctant to disclose anything to a provider because there's really no incentive to being truly accountable for harm you might have caused. Unfortunately, in our society, punishment is the primary tool. So <clears throat> they are left having to hold their struggle alone. So if we look at ways to break down this binary, it reminds us that in healthcare systems, we have an opportunity to really expand the care we give to the community, <clears throat> recognizing that trauma is living in the populations we serve. And sometimes it looks like victimization and sometimes it looks like being abusive. So this is not to excuse abuse ever, but it's to really expand the way we think about who is victimized, who is abusing, and why. Next slide, please. So as Mega mentioned, intimate partner violence, or IPV as we call it quickly, it shows up in many different ways. Just to think more specifically about in the health setting, uh, we know that health conditions are harder to manage when there is such a high level of stress on the mind and body. You might notice a patient is missing appointments regularly and you don't quite know why. <clears throat> you might notice patients hurting or controlling their partner, so using force or abuse, <clears throat> hurting or controlling their children, another way of being coercive or managing or coping with the struggle. There may be mental health impacts. You might notice that a patient is not able to adhere to treatment plans or care plans, something that is particularly relevant to HIV care. There may be disclosures of abuse in, in the clinical setting. You might notice injuries. You may begin to observe impacts on children. And further, more peripheral but equally difficult impacts on housing and economic security. The vulnerabilities caused by the rupture that intimate partner violence brings into a relationship or a household has many, many ripple effects that are that can be visible in the healthcare setting if we're looking. Next slide, please. So this is an incredible resource. Uh, it's, we call it the power and control wheel. It looks like a lot of you are from advocacy programs. So you are familiar with the power and control wheel, wheel for colleagues in the healthcare setting. This, would, this might be a really interesting new resource for you. This one specifically centers on the way HIV is used in power and control, in, in abusive patterns. You will have a PDF version of this coming to you uh, in case this is difficult to read. But just to give you a map, the wheel highlights some of the different ways that 
HIV might be used to manipulate or control another person. So we've talked about emotional abuse and economic abuse, but using children, using isolation, using different forms of coercion and threats, the, the uh, opportunities become endless because of the stigma associated with HIV and the, the fears associated with disclosure. So I encourage you to take a longer look at this. This uh, resource is available in English, in Spanish, French, Korean, and soon will be available in Arabic if those languages are useful in your community. Um, they're available in the toolkit by NNEDV, the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And you'll, that, that information will be shared with you in chat. I'll, I'll move to the next slide. So as I was just saying, HIV stigma is really one of the central uh, kind of fulc the fulcrum on which vulnerability really increases. Um, one study done in an HIV primary care clinic found that nearly three quarters of the sample, meaning people living with HIV, reported a lifetime experience or an experience of IPV in their lifetime. And 20% reported current abuse. That if you remember make the data Mega shared about one in three um, on average nationally experiencing IPV in their lifetime, we're talking now three in four. That is a staggering difference. More than one-fourth of those who reported being abused felt that the abuse was related to their HIV status. Again, a link between the stigma or the fears about HIV increasing vulnerability to violence. Okay, next slide. Uh, this, again, is an, another way to state the how big of an issue this is nationally, over half of women living with HIV have experienced partner violence, which is much higher than the national prevalence at, among women overall. So what do we do about it? We won't be able to go into great detail about this, but we encourage you to look at the toolkits that we'll be sharing to learn more about this methodology. It's an evidence-based intervention that we call CUES. CUES is an acronym, stands for confidentiality, universal education, empowerment, and support. The method relies first on ensuring privacy, seeing patients alone, making it a policy to see patients alone not doing a case by case, this person looks like they need to have a conversation, making it a policy. We always see patients alone. Ensuring they know the limits to confidentiality. Ensuring your patient knows that there are some things that you have to report depending on where you are located. And then providing universal education. We have these beautiful little safety cards uh, there'll be more information about how to order these for free. These are the universal education tool. 
We have scripts available for you to learn from, to practice, to adapt in your own voice. But the basic idea is because relationships can sometimes get hard, we're giving these to all our patients. Take a look at it and let me know if you'd like to talk about it. There are resources and hotline numbers on the back that might be of help to you or someone you know. The universal education removes the need for disclosure, removes the need for screening, because we know that disclosure rates are quite low in the clinical setting. So uh, taking away disclosure from the equation frees you up as, as a healthcare provider to just make sure that everyone gets information about healthy relationships. And then we know that even though disclosure is not the goal, disclosures sometimes happen. So being able to provide a warm referral to a partner organization that is able to provide the support that the survivor needs is the final essential key. <clears throat> so partnership building is another element of what we would encourage you to grow. Next slide, please. This focus on universal education, as I mentioned, treats survivors with respect by giving them the information about relationships and where to get support without expecting anything from them first. It can be used also to normalize the act of seeking support and destigmatizing the health conditions um, that might be in the way. For instance, traumatic brain injury or other issues that create neurological concerns. Uh, so we, we encourage the universal education approach to improve the support that survivors get and also to advance equity and kind of democratize the access to information. Okay, next slide. So now I am absolutely delighted to start a, an exciting panel discussion uh, with, <clears throat> as we mentioned earlier, Ashley Sly of the National Network to End Domestic Violence, Nishi Parkinson, an independent co consultant and activist and speaker, and Dr. LaShonda Spencer, uh, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at Charles Drew University. I am going to invite the three of you to come on screen. And I believe we can maybe take the slides down so that we can see our panelists better. And while we're doing that, <clears throat> I'm gonna invite, first of all, welcome. <laughs> face to face. <clears throat> I'm going to start us off with a request for a round of introductions. Uh, if it's possible, before we begin, Mega, can you just uh, spotlight the five of us, our ASL interpreter, myself, and the three panelists, just yeah, to kind of just clean up, like just to make a cleaner um, screen. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Okay, so just to get, get started, let's start with some introductions. Can I invite you, each of you, 
to tell us a little about yourself and how you've come to be a part of this discussion about the intersection between IPV and HIV and health equity. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Spencer? I see you right next to me. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Hello, my name is Dr. LaShonda Spencer. I'm medical director for MLK Oasis Clinic in South Los Angeles and the director of Drew Center for HIV Research Education and Services at Charles Drew University. I've been working in the HIV field for the last 20 years with the emphasis on women living with HIV and the intersection with IPV and other inequities women face. Really glad to be here with you this morning. I do have to apologize in advance that I have to leave off early for another meeting, but I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. So glad you're here with us. Uh, Mishi, can you join us and um, share a little about yourself and how you got became part of this discussion? Uh, good day, everyone. My name is Mishi Parkinson, and I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I became part of the working process of IPV and HIV. I am a 26-year living positively and strong woman living with HIV. And I'm also a survivor of intimate partner and domestic violence, too, as, my, as well. Um, capacity building, champion, act, act, activist work that I've been doing um, for 26 years or longer has um, paved the way for me to be here today. I pay homage to Positive Women Network USA. I pay homage to Ribbon Consultants and so many others who have provided me the affordability to learn policy, how to pass bills and walk the halls of legislation um, to help women um, in their own diaspora and diversity um, and inclusion to allow us to be able to speak and affirm our spaces and also be able to build our tables so that we can make sure that we rise to our full potentials. Mm. So thanks for having me. So glad you could be here with us, Nishi. And Ashley, can you join, can you introduce yourself? Tell us how yes. you come to be a part of this discussion. Of course. Um, hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Good morning, wherever you're joining from. Uh, my name is Ashley Sly. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, I am the Deputy Director of Positively Safe at the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Um, the Positively Safe project addresses the intersection of intimate partner violence and HIV. And we provide um, training and technical assistance to both domestic violence and HIV organizations um, at the local, state, and national level. Um, and I've been uh, working on this project since its inception in 2010, so almost 13 years now, um, and have really had the opportunity to work with some incredible advocates um, and, and women doing work in this space, including Nishi, um, but as well as the Positive Women's Network, um, Sister Love and, and Atlanta, Georgia, the AIDS Foundation of Chicago. So really amazing people. And just, um, it's such a privilege to be able to work alongside these incredible advocates um, uh, every single day. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I should add, Ashley and I host a podcast on this topic, this very intersection, which we'll share with you called Expanding the Continuum. And I, I hope that you uh, check it out and enjoy it. We'll be sharing that those details with you later. Uh, 
So given the data that was presented earlier, I want to start with a question about what is working right now? What do you think the healthcare system is doing well, if anything, and uh, to address these intersections? And, and maybe also what kinds of improvements or changes have you seen over time? I'd love to start with your thoughts, Dr. Spencer. Hmm. So I think over the years, there's been more emphasis for screening on IPV and domestic violence, particularly over the last 10 years. Um, within that time, um, the U.S. Preventive Task Force released a recommendation for all providers to do screening for women of childbearing age for intimate partner violence, and that happened in 2013. And so that was a first start. And I think that was a really good start because although we were supposed to be doing it, there wasn't anything that told us or gave guidelines or recommendations on how to do it. And so when the um, task force instituted that recommendation in 2013, then medical systems and systems of care had to develop some system to implement that screening. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there still have been persistent challenges, right? Because we're supposed to be screening all women of childbearing age, which limits who you're screening if you just limit it to the childbearing age as well. Um, but it really didn't give any details on how to do it and institutions had to kind of do it on their own. Now in the HIV field, we're well aware of the literature as you mentioned in the slide. And, and we're well aware that, you know, these sort of vulnerabilities around IPV and domestic violence is what put women at risk for HIV. And so we're well versed in the literature in doing that. But I think the challenges of implementation of how do you do this in the clinic, again, without clear guidelines on how to do it, um, is a challenge because a lot of times the providers you know, either think they don't have enough time if they open that door um, to address the issue, it may take longer than necessary, or they may perceive it to take longer than um, um, to extend their visits. They may not be trained. And particularly if you have a lot of staff turn turnover, you have to train your staff every year or however often you have the turnover. Mm -hmm. um, providers sometimes fear offending the patient. So I don't want to offend or embarrass the patient. And, and providers may also may have their own personal experiences with um, intimate partner violence that may interfere with them addressing um, the client that's in front of them. So I think the challenge, it's great that they we have this recommendations, but the challenges persist in how it's implemented in each clinical setting. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you. That brought up a lot of important issues there. Um, in, your, in your time working on these issues, have you seen a, 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 any kind of shift uh, in, in any positive directions? Well, yeah, I mean, only because I'm a biased okay. <laughs> provider. So this is something in my clinic that we do frequently. And, um, and so I think there's more emphasis and recognition that we need to, particularly in the realm of health equity, um, that we really need to address some of these issues. And these are systems issues. They are not, you know, although it's affecting an individual person, this is a system issue that we really has to be attacked at the system level. And so if your agency is not addressing these issues from a systemic level, then it's really hard to make a, a, a imprint on addressing IPV and 
the fallout from IPV. Yes. So I do think that there's more emphasis on it. So I do think that's a good thing. I do think clinics are striving, particularly here in the Los Angeles area where we are, where we have access to a lot of training, we have a lot of access to a lot of services like other communities do as well, but there's an intentional effort to do something about it. Thank you. Um, I'd love to hear from Nishi too on this. What have you seen uh, what what do you think health systems are doing well and and what have you seen improve over time? Um, I can speak from my perspective um, in the work that we are doing in Missouri that, um, that those screenings are 100% helpful to break down the barriers of stigma among women that may walk into a clinic space that need the services but feel like she is being judged. So overall, you have to make a safety plan for that woman when she enters your uh, facility and make sure that you keep it as healthy as possible. And also you use your peer-led uh, components that you may have in your clinic settings to help um, if there is a woman that has identified as a survivor in your clinic space to utilize her expertise and her knowledge to uh, gain um, momentum to talking with that young woman. We know we can't fix all of the problems right there on the first day, but to allow us to walk through a safe space with continuity and with strength and empowerment so that she can get to the first layer of getting some of her questions answered or receiving the care that she needs and getting medications and you know following up with her and giving her the essentials that she may need on that day. Mm, thank you. You really lifted up some critical components of trauma-informed care, that peer support, that empowerment. And, and uh, so I appreciate you lifting that up because it tells us, you know, it keeps us reaching for providing holistic trauma-informed care that really holds survivors um, at the, you know, at the center. Um, Thank you. Thank you for those reflections. I'm going to move to another question now. Um, and I'm going to ask you, Ashley, to start us off. What do you, what, how would you characterize some of the specific barriers that survivors living with HIV face when they're trying to access health um, and advocacy services? Yeah, great question. Um, well, there's a number of things that come to mind um, here. You know, if someone is having to access more medical appointments, um, you know, that's obviously there might be a barrier there, um, especially if they already have concerns about their safety and how they're getting to those appointments or if their um, partner might be tracking them. So, you know, having to find uh, alternative ways of getting there and making sure they're able to remain in care. Um, and even for, for those that are uh, looking at preventative options and being able to access PrEP, you know, the additional appointments that come with that. So from both sides, um, you know, there's definitely that barrier there. Um, and then the, just, uh, you know, part of the, the cost that might be associated with it from medications to um, uh, the doctor's appointments um, and uh, uh, blood tests and, you know, all of those additional costs that can be um, uh, compiled on top of that um, as well. And especially if you're your partner controls your finances, you know, being able to access the funds you need, it just becomes more and more difficult. And even if you have access to um, some of the, the programs that reduce the cost, it's still maybe not enough. So all of those kind of compounding financial abuse tactics and medical abuse tactics there really create more and more barriers um, for survivors that are living with HIV. 
And then, you know, we have to talk about um, access to medical information, right? Through health insurance. And if your partner is controlling your health insurance, or it may be your concern that they cancel your health insurance. Um, So, you know, that is a a huge um, issue. And then I think ultimately, being unsure of who they can trust. You know, if, if for so long your partner has belittled you and made you feel as if you don't know what you're talking about and really, um, uh, you know, um, gaslit you in every instance, you're not really sure if this medical provider is going to believe you. Um, so that in itself is a huge barrier for, for folks. Um, and, you know, that's why I think the interactions that happen with medical providers is so important. Um, knowing that maybe the conversation doesn't happen this first time, but maybe it happens the second appointment or the third appointment, but you've built that foundation. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear your reflections on that, Dr. Spencer, what, what you've observed or, uh, perceived. Sure. I would echo what Ashley says. I think um, some of the more common things that I see is really the clients knowing that the, what resources there are available to them in the setting of few resources available. Mm-hmm. Right. And so trying to navigate that space and then really getting in once they get to the spaces where the resources available, trusting the clinical and the medical, medical system there because that system may have failed them in the past. And I think that lack of trust and and it's up to us as providers and and medical systems to really ensure uh, that trust and make sure that we're in a welcoming environment to um, that woman that's presenting to us because of the experience of trauma in the past, as well as the mistrust of the medical system that I see a lot in our black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. And then as Ashley mentioned, I agree with all of the points she said in terms of, do they have the resources to get to where we need to go? The transportation, the lack of housing, if you can't be stable in some of these situations, um, financial stability, do they have money to pay rent or is it controlled by their abusive partner? Where's their emotional and physical support coming from as well? And don't forget the added responsibility of taking care of the kids if they have them or if they've got a mom or a dad or someone else that they're taking care of. So I think those all play into, you know, the barriers that we see as they're trying to assess their own care, but have to think about all of these other things Mm -hmm. um, in that same setting. Mm -hmm. So... Okay, so this is kind of, this is going to be a question for all of you. It's like magic wand time. If you could change two things, we'll start with you, Nishi, about how healthcare systems address IPV and health equity in the way that they care for survivors living with HIV, what would those two things be? Hmm, wow. That is a lot. Um, because, you know, we're still... Um, placing emphasis on the continuum of care of HIV and intimate partner domestic violence or IPV. And we always circle back with housing and transportation, right? Those are the two major things that we know of. And we know any woman over the age of 44 may have grandchildren, may have an extended family or kinship of some sort where she has to focus to be the matriarch of that family while still walking through uh, a critical time. So I think housing would be my wish 
to have all women. And then also the transportation abilities, because we know that budgets are pressed um, to the full extent. You know, when we get money from federal, state, local donors, you know, it's stretched very thin. Mm -hmm. So I think we should come up with a way to make a consensus or a consensus statement to pay homage to the affordability of those two essentials that are wholeheartedly needed. Mm, I really appreciate the way you panned it right out. Like the social determinants of health are what we have to start taking seriously as health system priorities is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. housing, awesome. Absolutely. Uh, Ashley, what are your thoughts on this one? Magic wand, two things that would be different that could yeah. be. Um, I mean, I echo what, what Nishi, um, talked about and just, um, really the importance of housing, right? Housing is healthcare. If you are not stably housed, how are you able to continue to take your medications and, and be able to afford those if you're, if you can't even afford rent, which we know is out of control in this country as it is, um, on top of that, while I think this has improved, I really do think we have to be thinking about the questions that surround IPV, IPV and making sure they're standard in all healthcare settings. And not just, are you experiencing domestic violence? Like we know that what people understand about domestic violence or intimate partner violence really varies. So we need to be thinking about this and asking about IPV in a variety of ways and not just focusing on physical and sexual abuse, because oh, all of the other tactics um, are, are, are can be just as harmful to people as the physical violence. Um, you know, and and I kind of I say this because I can count on one, maybe two hands, the number of times I've been asked in the past ten years about experiences of IPV. And then I once I tell them that that I actually work in this this field then I definitely don't get asked at future appointments. And we know that that advocates also can experience um, intimate partner violence. So ensuring this is just a standard thing, I really, really hope that we're gonna get to that point. Um, uh, and I think that what comes with the, this uh, these questions is also a discussion on language. So really thinking about the language we're using with people that are accessing our services and what that language conveys so are we using complex language that can be hard to follow? Is our language inherently biased? Does the term um, abuser or perpetrator cause a survivor to close off from you? And you know, speaking of the term survivor, what is implied by the term victim or survivor? So thinking about those things. And then the last thing I will say <laughs> that I'd love to see is um, really thinking and honoring confidentiality and privacy when it comes to healthcare providers especially those that are working in say primary care that may see um, patients that are couples. Um, so what does that look like and how do you kind of work through those challenges so you can still provide healthcare to, to people um, and having an understanding of also IPV confidentiality and those laws that restrict organizations yeah. from sharing information without those written informed um, time-limited releases is, is really key because just because you might be the good person doesn't mean I can just hand over the information to you. Um, those laws are in place for a very specific reason because we know how critical confidentiality is to the safety of those experiencing intimate partner violence. Mm. 
Thank you. Thank you. Again, a big systems approach. I really appreciate you panning out with us. So Dr. Spencer, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. If you could change a couple of things about how healthcare systems address IPV and health equity when caring sure. for survivors with HIV. I have two categories. Okay. <laughs> so um, you need to address the social determinants of health. So my two in that are housing, which was already mentioned awesome. for the reasons mentioned before. and the financial instability, addressing that with a guaranteed minimum income. Mm. I think that has been shown in several pilot studies to work and it lifts people up and particularly women with um, histories of IPV where they may not have control over the finances. This would be something that would really up uplift those women. And then the second category is training for providers and healthcare staff. Um, I think IPV training Intentional training is really important, not the just the U.S. task force recommendations that that no one will go to unless the their institutions make them read the policy, um, but really intentional training. We did um, Q's training that you mentioned before. We worked with Futures of Voices um, without at our clinic here in Los Angeles at both my clinics. Um, at Los Angeles, we trained the entire staff um, with the Q's training, and it really just was so instrumental in getting us to think about how we screen for IPV in a different way, without all of the, um, without feeling intrusive, without um, feeling that you were judging or the patient was going to be judged. Whatever the cards that um, suited be showed were are just fantastic to hand out. And we all did the training um, from, you know, the medical directors down to the nurses. We had champion leads in the clinic um, to help lead the training. And I mean, it's a wonderful intervention. So I highly recommend that. But I think clinics need to have more intentional trainings um, in IPV and know that they can do it without feeling intrusive um, to the patient or client that they're seeing. Thanks so much. And thanks especially for lifting up cues. I, I think I was I had the privilege to support that training and to see the way that people um, at, at just who are, sit in different places within the clinic, uh, the different ways that they took up the information and the intervention really was, you know, it was just important learning that everyone has a role. It's a team-based approach. It's not just in the hands of the doc or the nurse that there, there are many, many people that work in the clinical setting that have an opportunity to reflect one, the health clinic is a safe place to talk about this, two, you, you can talk to us about this. Like we actually have some skills, we know something. So it's a, it's really, it was really a joy to work with your team and I'm, I'm glad that it was helpful there too. But um, okay, so moving along. I want to think about what I want to ask next because, you know, I have a lot of questions in my mind about, but I'm going to go straight thinking about survivors. What do you think, and maybe I'll ask you first, Nishi, um, what do you think is most important for care providers to understand about serving survivors? What do they need to know about survivors um, and what they need for good quality care? Wow, 
great quality of care, great bedside manners. You know, when we walk into a facility um, of the uncertainty and the unknown, I can just take myself back to 1997 when I was diagnosed as a 17-year-old. And um, being afforded an opportunity to, you know, have my sister and have my best friend sit by my side during that time period um, was meaningful for me because I didn't know what just had happened to me. You know, getting a diagnosis from a young woman and you walk into this facility and they tell you to go left, right, down the hall, turn right, sit down, write your name on this piece of paper and the receptionist will be back with you shortly. You don't know what that means. You're just doing exactly what was given to you in detail to guide you to a location inside of a facility. But now we are 26 years forward, right? We are doing more um, robust um, continuity of steps and looking at the whole person. I think now that we're looking at the whole person, I believe providers also should do the same. Also, providers, um, first year, second year, third year, fourth year, I continue to say this, they have to be willing to talk to us, to, to be willing to allow us into their spaces for them to learn to as well. It's not all in a textbook. It is actually doing the work and actually feeling and showing up for us in specific spaces, you know, and doing what is asked of us for them to help us. You know, you can't help us if we continue to sit with you and say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, I understand. And we probably didn't understand. That woman probably didn't understand sitting there. And then she leaves feeling like she was left out. So I think the momentum is to always pull in your multi-D team to uh, work the puzzle because it is a puzzle because one woman shows up one way, another woman will show up a different way. And then two weeks later, when she comes or four weeks later for that four week turnaround appointment, she's she's looking a little different, right? She's strong in her uh, walk. She's stronger in her talk. But what happened in that time period? Because she talked to some people behind the scenes that could help her, such as a Ashley, such as a Dr. LaShonda, such as me, you know? So we've elevated those processes for her to be able to stand up, you know, in her own adversities. But I think the training and the knowledge of all the toolkits that we have built from PWN, from the Q, from Ashley's team, I think that momentum should be, should be intersected and integrated in teaching capacities for physicians so that they can know it's just not about HIV when they walk in that door. It's just not about intimate partner domestic violence when they walk in. It could be that the hit hit and I was sitting in the car and didn't think I would get hit. 20 minutes before my visit, mm -hmm. you know, and then I have to walk in and suck it up to get past the registration desk. So the momentum happens from the front door, the security officer that she may pass knowing that this officer may say something to her that may trigger because she's not well with talking with the authorities and making sure that your front end staff is able to be, um, yeah, watchful in those cues when she walks in to help her get to a safety net. She may not want to sit in that front lobby two hours or 45 minutes because of the situation that just took place. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully physicians um, could do better and empower in that way and to make sure that it is a whole person view. Uh -huh. Thank you. Thank you. Ashley, anything to add to that? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think kind of reflecting on what's been said about um, 
training for physicians, but also thinking about this dismantling the narrative around the perfect survivor. Mm -hmm. So having a full understanding of, of trauma and that trauma manifests in different ways, uh, including memory challenges and physical pain, insomnia, and you know excessive sleep, um, but also anger. Um, so you know, being able to understand that and 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 I don't know, not become so defensive in those spaces. You know, when somebody forgets their appointment, you know that we're not just like, well, you missed your second appointment, so you can't come back. You know how how providers like to say those kinds of things. Um, so really having an understanding of how trauma impacts our full bodies and our ways that we cope as well. Um, and I think with that, you have to be, you have to recognize that you have to be patient with survivors um, and understanding that the experiences of intimate partner violence is, is individualized from person to person. So while there are common tactics of abuse, how they um, how they're used can look very different for each survivor, and I would also say that really survivors should lead. Um, while we can offer them all sorts of resources and referrals, if they're not ready or, or do not want them, we should not force um, force them to take the those resources or referrals. You know, leaving an abusive partner is not always the goal, or at least maybe it's not the initial goal for survivors. Um, it may just be figuring out how to keep themselves safe in certain situations or rebuilding familial connections or determining how to save money um, for the time being until they are ready to leave. Um, you know, the IPV may not be their biggest concern um, at the time. And that's okay. Um, you know, if you've seen the the washing machine video that's on YouTube, you're very familiar with the fact that this woman only needed a washing machine, but the, the advocate wanted to give her everything else but the washing machines. The washing machine was the important piece that could make a difference um, for her. So really honor their expertise. They know their situation. They know their partner best and, and you know, what will or, or won't work for them um, in those situations. Thank you. That was such a great snapshot of survivor-centered practice. I really appreciate you framing it out that way. You, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, not, not necessarily uh, having kind of like a cookie cutter approach, like just a quick referral, like really listening to what was needed and inviting the survivor to leave. Can I invite you, uh, some of you to talk a little bit about how health settings can um, really support uh, survivors through partnerships with local advocacy programs? Because it might not mean it might not be the referral. It might simply be having the partnership that that changes the way that you work. So I want to start with Dr. Spencer, um, because I know you're probably running out of time and have to jump out soon. So I want to make sure I grab your thoughts on this one. Um, sure. How do you see partnerships in there in in really improving care for survivors? Um, for us, the when we went through the Q's training, so we had some partners that we worked with um, around IPV and domestic violence and, and other housing resources for women, but going through the training helped us really formalize that process 
and really put it down in writing what we were going to help and with in terms of our partner and what the community partner was going to do for us and how that interchange and exchange of services was going to look like. And I think that was really important because things came up that, you know, that our community partner says, hey, we can do this, that, and the other that we didn't know was available right and the same vice versa for us and so i think it was really important to really um to set up those relationships in a formal way mm-hmm. where you're having uh mou between the agencies and you sit down and you go over exactly what we can offer between the two agencies and what that would look like mm-hmm. including use you know uh, some of our agency our partner agencies would come to the visits with women. Um, and that made the woman feel much more safer and comfortable because there was someone there. We have peer navigators as well at our institution. So our navigators, vice versa, would go with the woman to the agency um, to help, you know, just bridge that gap and a warm handoff and bi-directionally. So I think it was really for us important to really formalize that relationship, even though we have been working together for years, you know, mm-hmm. but really to make that a more formal process. Um, and streamline it um, for our clients so that there weren't any hiccups that we knew exactly what each agency was going to do and how they were going to help and what services were available. So I think that was really important for us to formalize partnerships that we had already, but Uh hadn't gone through the formal process. Yeah. And there's like the, there is like a transformative impact of formalizing it because Mm -hmm. it stays on people's radar. You have like you learn there's a cross-training element. You learn about what mm-hmm. the other agency really does and you kind of integrate it into what you know you have to offer. So even if the survivor is not interested in going anywhere, they will have acquired a little bit of information mm-hmm. about what it's like to go there. What yeah. happens when you call that hotline? What what do they yeah. do over there? It's not just a, here's a number, call if you want. Right, exactly. Wonderful. The warm handoffs um, are really important. Yes, Yes, the warm handoff. Um, any other thoughts on that, Ashley? I know that you had sort of started referring to it, but I'd love to hear if there's anything else you'd like to say about partnerships. Yeah, um, I, I think one specific thing that could be helpful that um, I think Dr. Spencer um, touched on is is uh, even if someone is, is say, not ready to um, go to a domestic violence or sexual violence uh, uh program or or organization. Um, if you have that partnership built, even offering for the advocate to come to you. So the next time that, um, the, the survivors do to come to your office, they don't have to think about going to another place. Again, if they're being feel like they're being tracked, we, we want to cut down those barriers. So if you have the, that, that partnership in place that allows someone to be even, um, uh, you know, on site once a week, um, for survivors to access, that's, that's a huge opportunity for them to connect without the additional, um, uh, location. Um, but I think the most important thing I always like to acknowledge is like when it comes to our partnerships, um, really thinking about how we make them meaningful and sustainable, Um, so thinking about who's at the table when we're building these partnerships, so it shouldn't just be executive leadership, but it should be people working with survivors, working with people living with HIV, working on the ground, um, need to be really included in the development of, of, um, those partnerships Mm -hmm. and, you know, really thinking about, um, uh, uh, creating a plan 
for how this partnership grows and moves. What goals are we setting for ourselves? What is our strategy here? What are our next steps? Who else is missing from this conversation? Um, so I think that can be really helpful in, in, in creating a plan that's going to um, move forward, um, that it's not just a, you know, uh, yeah, we've said we had a handshake and we walked away, but then what actually happens next? So um, we do have um, a collaboration action plan. People are welcome to use. It's in our Positively Safe Toolkit um, on our website. For me, it's helpful because I like to write things down and be able to review, re refer back to it and everyone can have a copy of it. So you feel like you're on the same page um, as well. Thank you. Yes, I really want to highlight the, the toolkit that they have developed in the Positively Safe program at NNEDV. The, I think the, there are many resources in the chat. You'll, you'll definitely receive links for that toolkit. Um, and uh, yeah, not to be missed. I um, feel we're coming to the end. I mean, not the end end because we have lots of time for question and answer, but I would like to hear... Um, I'd like to ask one more question where, oh, thank you, Dr. Spencer. I'm glad you were here. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Nishi, maybe you can uh, take this question. Um, what do you think healthcare providers, I, okay, I'll start with, I know we have talked about social determinants of health. We've talked about housing, universal basic income, a variety of sort of supports that make it possible for survivors to thrive. But when we think about health equity, what do you think healthcare providers can do to promote health equity for survivors that are seeking care in HIV care settings? Um, in addition to what we've already mentioned, you know, if we think about the health equity frame that we opened with, that not about individual behaviors, it's about systems, right? Um, what do you think, what kinds of systems changes do you think are, would, would benefit survivors living with HIV? I think, um, some of the system changes should be, um, developed or implemented at the ER level, mm. um, because you, you have social workers that work in the ER, you have physicians that work in the ER and they see this daily. Um, nine times out of the 10, a friend may bring them or the individual may be brought in by EMS, right? So I think that level of care plan for a young woman who may be coming in and this may be her first time experiencing something like this. So it's real fragile. It's real new. Um, we, we're not sure if she's going to go back. Um, like Ashley said, she has to take the lead, right? And that lead may look different. So I think that training efforts at the ER level should be um, implemented worldwide, you know, not just state by state or jurisdiction by jurisdiction. I think it should be worldwide that we should implement some of the tools that we've learned what work well for certain situations to improve the continuity at that level. I do believe that um, our organizations have done a great um work ethics to pull or overlap intersection of organizations and consortiums. But I think also we need to hone in on, you know, our, our Black women who have been um, marginalized and disproportionately affected. Um, and as we're celebrating Women History Month, you know, um, this is the closeout of March for us. And I think that we should really 
find ways that it can be resonated, not just in this month, but moving forward through the months ahead, because we know that different things take place in um, women's lives based on emotion, time, taste, smell, living arrangements, all of that. And I think our physicians um, should implement core values of coursework over a period of time um, and you know, podcasting, listening to podcasting, actually having someone come into their tables and really share some of the uh, credible data that we've received over a period of time that is great for them to utilize to be able to have that refresher course um, because things are changing so fast um, in the time in the world that we live in. And if COVID-19 hasn't showed us anything, mm-hmm. we would be remiss to talk about that because so many women were isolated and stuck inside of their homes um, and the level of death um, was alarming through that process. So we have to know that we have to show up because there will be another pandemic of some sort. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for lifting that up, Nishi. Really appreciate that. Uh, any thoughts, Ashley, on uh, promoting health equity for survivors seeking HIV care? Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, gosh, I mean, so much here, right? I I think, um, really it's, it's so key that we're listening again to, to the people, um, uh, receiving care, um, and, and not just listening, like in like, okay, I mean, with the doctor and they're, they're listening to me, but like taking time to like actually gather feedback that improves our systems. Like what is and isn't working, um, and, and listening to what they're saying, um, you know, because that feedback probably is making a huge difference in how people are able to access your services. Um, uh, they're able to get referrals, um, whatever that is. Um, and I'll, you know, kind of along with that is like norm, making it a norm that physicians and medical care providers in general can spend time with us. Um, right. So quickly we, it's like this turnover process of like, okay, I've been here for five minutes. I got to go to the next room that again, that, that sets like this. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, what does that say to people when they're accessing our services that we're not able to give them the time? So how do we make that the norm in our culture that, that we really value, um, you coming and spending time with me and, and I'm creating space for you to share with me and us to build this relationship Again, so maybe the next time or the time after that, you feel more comfortable to disclose if you've experienced intimate partner violence. Like all of those things go hand in hand in terms of how we operate um, uh, in in medical settings. But I think another thing, kind of like thinking, you know, we always think about, um, you know, what can happen on the policy level, like big P policy. And I feel like that's not exactly the answer only because we've seen kind of the backlash that's happened over the past, you know, couple of years. And, um, so how do we, how do we look more at little P policy, um, and, and doing small things internally that can start to change the tide or change the narrative, even as simple as like, let's create our own internal organizational policies that address domestic violence. So how is it handled if a staff discloses? Um, What if someone on staff is is a perpetrator of domestic violence? What do we do there? Do we have um, domestic violence safety? So survivors uh, are working on staff can access supportive services or legal services or medical care if it's necessary. So again, by internally 
making moves to address intimate partner violence, we begin to start to um, uh, change the narrative in our community about intimate partner violence. Mm. So starting small. Thank you. And and starting with survivor voices, the way Nishi described. I mean, Nishi, I really want to give you the last word here before we wrap as a survivor on this panel. Thank you so much for bringing your story and your experience to this. Um, uh, anything else you want to share with our listener, our audience about improving health systems response to HIV care for survivors? Um, thank you so much for having me. I want to give it up to Ashley because she is the light bright. And I want to say thank you to all of the panelists. But my last closing statement is removing the bandages removing the obstacles, removing the stigma, and rising the empowerment for women to thrive and know that being a victim, becoming to a survivor portion is not easy. It takes years, months, weeks, days, and seconds and hours to get to this point. Mm -hmm. What I look like today, I've not always looked like. I've been through some things. And if there is a woman that is listening today, and you need to step into a safe space today. Do just what we shown today here on this um, webinar today for you all. Utilize this to impact your lives, to know that people are out here to care for you and to love on you and to strengthen you from the top of your head to the sole of your feet. We are not here to judge and you have capacity here that will walk with you and talk with you. Use the resources, use the links. And ladies and gentlemen, behind the voice of me as Nishi speaks, we are a true creed of blossoming women forward. And as we close out this Women's Month, take heed to the signs, the songs, the text messages, the mute buttons. And if it's someone that you haven't talked to in a while that may be in isolation mode, reach out to her and tell her that you love her and check in on the strongest person. Thank you so much. I invite everyone to take a deep breath, receive Nishi's wisdom, and take a few seconds and think about if you have any questions for us. I wanted to say we do have one question, um, Surabhi, that we got. Um, so um, this person asked to get your magic wand wishes what can healthcare staff do to advocate for those structural changes like guaranteed income and safe and affordable housing? So what can healthcare staff do to advocate for structural changes you all mentioned? Well, Ashley, I'll turn it over to you because you just mentioned um, a little bit of that in I am not sure if your team is willing to collab with the young woman who is mentioning um, the information, but I'll go ahead and let you take it. Sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, housing is like one of the most challenging things for people to have to navigate, for survivors to have to navigate um, for a variety of reasons, right? Because housing stock is low, rent is high. Um, wait lists for, you know, housing, uh, permanent housing, permanent supportive housing, section eight, whatever you want to call it are long. Um, so where's the, how do we prioritize, um, survivors too? Um, 
I will put a plug for our housing team at NNEDV that is incredibly knowledgeable on all of the ins and outs of housing. So if you um, are interested in working with them, please reach out to me. I'm more than happy to connect you. Um, but I think just uh, starting with those connections um, to folks in the housing field. So maybe um, the housing authority isn't someone you've worked with, but being able to start that connection can open doors. Um, you know, I feel like most communities, a lot of communities that I've worked with, maybe they don't have um, housing choice vouchers, but they have um, uh, the tenant or the project-based voucher um, uh, units available. So maybe they don't, Maybe you don't want it a, a project based. You'd rather have you know the choice of living wherever, but it's at least a start. Um, so being able to build those relationships and be connected in those spaces, and obviously this is where domestic violence programs come in as well. If you're not a DV program, being connected with them, a lot of them have access to transitional housing, rapid rehousing funds. A lot of them operate their own permanent supportive housing units as well. Um, so those are really good um, uh, organizational um, uh, items to tap into. On top of that is a lot of, um, uh, well, every state has access to um, HOPWA funds or housing opportunities for people with AIDS um, funds out of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, so this provides housing to uh, people that are living with HIV. Um, so how it's distributed across your state to be determined. It's very different everywhere, but seeing uh, who's operating the hop of housing um, uh, in your community or state uh, is also another place to kind of tap into. I know of a handful of domestic violence programs that are in partnership with um, the HOPWA providers in their communities. So this is another place they've been able to open the door for housing um, to survivors that are living with HIV. Um, and it's, you know, just one more way to, to help people um, get into to uh, support to housing and again, be able to uh, remain in care um, with that housing. So um, there's different kind of things. Please reach out. I would love to, to chat more and be able to connect you with our housing team who's, you know, way more knowledgeable about these things than I am, even though I've spent years doing housing. Debbie Fox is like <laughs> of all housing. So <laughs> I want to bring your attention, Ashley, to a question that Nishi answered in text, but you might have a thought about also the question from, uh, I think it was Blue, who said, what do you think could, could be an excellent way for DV coalitions to get started to offer some programming for survivors living with HIV? We do not have any programs, so I'm researching the best way to start acknowledging the need for support. I thought maybe you could say a word about coalitions. It's a little different than health centers and programs. Yeah, sure. Um, please feel free to reach out to us. You know, I know uh, it's a different kind of uh, setup if you're as a coalition versus being a local program offering services. So um, more than happy to be of support. We have done a training of trainers for coalitions. Um, so if you're interested in going through that um, uh, path, uh, we're more than happy to um, engage with you and figure out what that could look like. Um, you know, I think it's so important for coalitions to be a leader in this, um, in their state. Um, so that kind of to encourage local programs to also buy into the need for this intersection. So just doing simple things as, creating resources or hosting a webinar 
you know, they're not huge things, but they can speak volumes to the fact that this is a necessary um, topic to be focusing on, right? Um, so I, I would be more than happy to, um, to to talk with you and we can kind of strategize around what you're currently done, um, what maybe is being done in, um, um, I believe you said Iowa, um, and, and how we can make all of that work together um, so that it's a, you know, a, a productive and uh, successful um, push to really uh, incorporate um, this intersection to the work. I also want to make a little plug for an early episode of Expanding the Continuum, where Ashley and her colleagues speak extensively about Positively Safe and what you can learn from them. So I encourage you to check that out as well. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today on Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and at nnedv.org. Thanks for listening.